Heal the Cracks in the Bell of the World for the community of Newtown, Connecticut, where 20 students and six educators lost their lives to a gunman at Sandy Hook Elementary School, December 14, 2012. Now, the bells speak with their tongues of bronze. Now, the bells open their mouths of bronze to say, listen to the bells a world away. Listen to the bell in the ruins of a city where children gathered copper shells like beach glass and the copper boiled in the foundry and the bell born in the foundry says, I was born of bullets, but now I sing of a world where bullets melt into bells. Heal the Cracks in the Bell of the World is a poem written and read by Martina Spada. You can enjoy the complete reading of this poem at the end of this conversation. I am Alan Winston, and we are honored to have two poets with us today, Laurent Marie Schmidt and Martina Spada. This is the third in Barcrawl Radio series, Poetry, What Is It Good For? And we're recording at Gephardt's Beer Culture Bar, across the street from the mortuary, a few blocks from Lowenstein's Hall at Fordham University, where later this evening, Ms. Schmidt will be speaking at a Poets Out Loud event. And... After we play our bop-bop lead-in by Wade Ripka's Eastern Blockheads, a Soviet pop band, we will introduce Chris Brandt, who married these two amazing poets. And so, here we go. (laughs) (laughs) And I am Rebecca McCain, and Chris Brandt, our co-producer of BCR's Poetry, what is it good for? Series was also the minister who married our two guests, Lauren and Martine. Chris, Alan and I deeply appreciate that you have brought these two poets to our podcast. How do you all know each other? Well, I've known Martine for 20 years now, I believe. Uh, I studied with Martine. Martine was a workshop leader at the William Joyner Center in Boston. And Six years ago? Was it that long already? I met Lauren through Martine. Um, and we have done poetry together. We've been fr- become good friends over the years. And uh, I think we'd be good friends no matter what, but I'm particularly happy to be friends with two such fabulous poets. Could you tell us a little about that wedding? Where was it? And, uh... <laughs> it was in Asbury Park, New Jersey, yep. right across from the boss's uh, venue where the boss plays. <laughs> it's called Porta Pizza. Yeah, it was, a, it was a nice place. It was really nice. It was a lovely ceremony. And Lauren, you're, you're, you're in, you're, you call yourself a Jersey girl. Well, born and raised. I don't live there anymore, but and I yeah. moved away a lot. But I. But you were married there, so. We were married in New Jersey. Yeah. Well, we yeah. were too. We were married in New Jersey, right, if you'll in, recall. That's right. I do recall. <laughs> long time ago, but. Long time ago. Where were you married? In Morristown. Oh, okay. Right, where my Cousins rich, where my rich, rich cousin had a house had in a house, Morristown, and he gave it, let us use it for our wedding. Let, yeah, just very yeah, it was very nice. It was very nice. Yeah. Lauren, welcome to Bar Crawl Radio. Thanks uh, so much for having me. We're certainly going to get to your poems and your new book of poetry, uh, Filthy Labors. Labors. I can't, the, the labors part, I always get the filthy part. Mm-hmm. That's, the, the, that's the fun word. The filthy, exactly. Filthy. <laughs> filthy, yeah. yeah. Right. Is, that, is, is that what it is? Can we talk a little bit about, about who you are, not as poets, but where you came from and like a little bio of who you are? I know uh, uh, Frank Espada was your father. Yes, Frank Espada. Uh, Which our, our listeners may not know who it is, surprisingly, but... Yeah, uh, well, my father, Frank Espada, was uh, born in Puerto Rico, and um, he, he came to the city at an early age. Um, he evolved into uh, a civil rights activist and community organizer and a documentary photographer. He was the creator of something called the Puerto Rican Diaspora Documentary Project, the photo documentary of the Puerto Rican community, um, resulting in a number of uh, one-person shows and a book called the Puerto Rican Diaspora. I grew up in that activist household. Uh, We, uh, uh, my family, uh, grew up um, in the East New York section of Brooklyn, in the Linden Projects, and Wortman Avenue, and later on Stanley Avenue. and uh, I became an activist in my own right. So um, I uh, went to law school 
I got a law degree at Northeastern University Law School in Boston. I practiced tenant law in Greater Boston for a number of years. Tenant? Tenant 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 law. law. Yes, uh, housing law. Right. And um, I supervised a program called Su Clinica Legal, which was a legal legal services program for low-income Spanish-speaking tenants in Chelsea, Massachusetts. Not the one here, but the one outside Boston. Um, Eventually, I moved away from that, and for more than 25 years now, I've been a professor at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst in their English department, and along the way, published 20 books. So, um, and received I, quite a few awards. This too, and that, yeah. Yeah, 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 this and that. Uh, the the poem I just read came from a book called "Vivas to Those Who Have Failed" from W. W. Norton. Um, I have another book coming out early next year with Norton, which is called uh, "Floaters." I've been uh, reading. I get uh, those in my eye. <laughs> Yeah, that's one meaning. Yeah. That's one meaning. There's another more insidious meaning that uh, gives my book its title. Maybe we can talk about that later. You were also a compassionate bouncer. Yes. Well, I don't know how compassionate I was. <laughs> I, 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 I well, did. That's how you described yourself. Well, I, did, I say, I did I say compassionate? Because I once broke my hand on somebody's head. Uh, so you, said, you said, now mind you, being a bouncer can be a compassionate business because most of the time you're not punching people in the face. There was just the one time um, <laughs> that you broke your hand. But I, yeah, because it turns because out it turns out in the poem I wrote about that, uh, as I say, the uh, human skull is harder than any fist. <laughs> there you go. Which is and, and you learned that physiologically, that's true. Yeah. But in reality, what I was saying in that long ago interview was that uh, you know a bouncer's job is is not what you see in uh, the movie Roadhouse with Patrick Swayze. You know, you're not uttering f- uh, philosophical uh, aphorisms and, and then beating the hell out of people. You know, you're, you're finding coats, you're finding hats, you're finding uh, gloves, you're finding books. You're finding you're call- drunk people. You're calling the cab for whoever has passed out and needs to get home and then you need to get that person into the cab or today it might be an Uber and, and, and send that person on their way. And I'm sure occasionally you have to talk someone down off the stool to uh, well, you, sure. you, head you, out the you, door. You would get between people, but mostly it was about, it was oddly enough about intervening when people had had too much to drink and couldn't take care of themselves. Right, right, right. Yeah. That's where I stopped drinking, by the way. Okay, and wait, we didn't say what we were drinking today because Lor- no. Lauren and uh, Martine are not. Are not drinking. They're, well, That's they're drinking perfectly water. Perfectly okay. New yeah. York, New York water. And I realize we're in a bar, <laughs> and I should be talking up the latest uh, whatever that is. Well, I'm having well you can talk Lawrence up your, IPA, so. your New York City water, which is really good. Uh, yeah, see, what I remember about New York City water was always it was cloudy. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, it's terribly cloudy. Yeah, it was gray oh. and grainy. But then. You uh, know, when you were a kid? Yeah. 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 Now that might have been plaster. I don't know. Yeah, it, it might have been the pipes. It might have been the pipes. Yeah. yeah. People were always banging on the pipes in a constant uh, act of aggression against one another from one, you know, one floor to the next. Yeah. But then you know that's that was you know where I grew. I didn't, I didn't grow up in nice Brooklyn. Let's put it that way. And yeah. I realize now Brooklyn is another. Country. My my. Well, it's a big 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 borough. My father was uh, uh, a waterman. He would he, he purified water in North Miami, Florida. He was the head of the, he water, was the water department. department. And he would always say, New York City water, it's the best. Oh, well, my father was an ice boy, so he used to carry the frozen water. Okay, okay. there you, there go. you, there you go. Lauren, we got to get you into this. Where'd you grow up? I know you were in a somewhat of a religious family. Yeah, I grew up in northern New Jersey in Bergen County. Um, my parents took me to church every weekend. We did the CCD thing. Um, What's what, the CCD what thing? Catechism. Oh, okay, okay. It's like religious school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you're Catholic? Not anymore. Not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and not for a while. I was raised Catholic, definitely. Uh-huh. And it's um, certainly a part of the, the way I view the world in a lot of ways. But right. um, I think the one thing that I took away from my Catholic upbringing is service, the idea of service, which isn't a strictly Catholic value. Um, but I don't, the Jesus thing doesn't ring true anymore. So. Right. <laughs> Among other things. Well, we, we've uh, talked uh, many uh, of our shows with the Catholic workers in the Dorothy Day movement, and Chris has been involved with, uh, with that movement. Um, so uh, we, so uh, that, that part of the Catholicism seems to make a lot of sense. Well, you don't have to be Catholic to be Catholic No, absolutely worker. not. I feel like I'm a Catholic worker, and I'm certainly not Catholic. Um, and so, how, Lauren, how did you decide, or did you decide, or was it decided for you to become a poet? 
I started writing when I was really young, but my first love is actually music. And I feel like I only turned to poetry when I was a teenager, when I was trying to work through some challenges in my in my background. Um, had a really good family, very tight-knit family. Um, but my grandfather had had a massive stroke when he was 50, and my grandmother was really ill, so they lived with us. And um, my grandfather never really recovered from the stroke, and so he lost his language, he lost a good deal of his mobility, um, and it felt like a lot of the, the the stuff that I remember about my upbringing was really about caretaking and, and looking out for my grandparents. Um, I think their presence in my life shaped a lot of who I am and who I've become, particularly as a teacher as well. Right. Um, Do you identify yourself as a teacher or as a poet? He gets mad at me because I still put he teacher... He meaning Martine. Yeah. He meaning yeah. Martine. That, that doesn't answer the question. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, let's, I think let's I hit on say, something raw here. <laughs> say what no. you feel. Let's just say that um, I'm trying to put the, the writer first, but it's not really easy. I work in a charter school right now in Springfield, Massachusetts, and um, I leave the house at 620... Um, I get home at 5.30. Becky is a teacher. <laughs> she leaves at 5, 6.20. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's yeah. sort of awful. So yeah. I have a 50-minute commute, um, and then the school day is an extended school day. The school environment is not exactly easy. Um, so it's hard not to feel like that's what I do all day when that's what I do all day. But um, writing is really important to me, and I'm actually in the middle of a shift. I'm actually working on a young adult novel right now. So. I read some of it. It's brilliant. Oh, thank you. Brilliant. So. I mean, the little pieces about... I, I don't know if we want to get into that too much because we really want to talk about your poetry. Not a problem. But it's, uh, it's about a real event that happened. It's almost like a Rashomon thing uh, where you get the different viewpoints on this particular rape of this uh, young lady at a party. Uh, yeah, it, it, it comes across very... Give us the name of it so people want to look it up. It's called The Players... At yeah. least right now, so I'm still working on it. You're working on it. It's, so it's what, the only title that seems to make sense for me right now. What, watch out for the players. One of the things that comes to me, Lauren, because I just, I just got through your uh, most recent book, Filthy Labors. It's pretty filthy in places, I think because life is kind of filthy, but it's wonderful, just wonderful. And, I, and, I, and I'd, I'd like to ask both of you, because you both get into very personal stuff, I think, Lauren, you almost get more personal than Martine. I haven't read all of Martine's Oh, absolutely. How is it? I, I couldn't imagine writing about my family or the people I know the way you write about them. So what, what is a place you put yourself in that says, I don't know, I'm allowed to do it? Or, you know, it's like you can't this stop is what yourself. I do or I can't stop or I have to... Well, I should lead with the fact that they don't really like it. Um, <laughs> okay. It's, it's not well-received all the time. And, and I think I understand why, because, I mean, these are really intimate, personal things in there. But I just feel like the things that are happening in my family are happening in other families. And if someone can have the guts enough to talk about, um, you know, an, an elderly parent losing control of his bowels on Christmas, you know, um, and maybe can alleviate the shame that's associated with those kinds of things because they happen to a lot of people. Yes. Um, oh, yeah. It just happened with my mother just a couple of years yeah, ago. Yeah, just before you know. she passed. Yeah. And interestingly enough, you know, along with your poem, it was a very interesting poem, I don't know the name of it, in which your brother is cleaning up the shit of his young baby, and he turns to you and says, well, you're going to be doing it for our our parents. Yes, because I'm the only girl in the family. Yeah, because you're the F in the family. <laughs> yeah. 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 You, you have that, that, that job. Somehow it does fall to the women, doesn't it, sometimes? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's interesting, though, like, with my family and all the caretaking that we did of my grandparents, even though there's a lot of shit and piss and snot and blood and broken speech from strokes and cancer and all those kinds of things... I also think that those are the, the measurement of love in my family, oh. that we are able to get down and dirty and take care of each other in a way that there is no shame. And, and not to say that it's easy, right, but um, I really feel like the expressions of love in what are really dark, difficult, embarrassing, shameful times, you know, we're really, really vulnerable with each other, and I think that that's, that's poetry worthy. There's a, there's a line <clears throat> in a letter that Whitman wrote when he was taking care of wounded soldiers in Washington, D.C. during the Civil War. He said, The wounded and sick get incredible near to one. They respond so affectionately to kindness and magnetism. And I feel like both of you come from that place in different ways, but clearly both of you have that kind of closeness to people and 
caring about the others? Well, what you're referring to is, uh, you know, Whitman rolling up his sleeves and doing what had to be done. And uh, we, uh, both as, as poets and, and as people, have a history of doing the same. What amazes me about Lauren's work is, however, the uh, utter fearlessness of it. You know, there, there, there are things that I've seen, things that I've uh, experienced that I wouldn't be able to write about. I don't have the vocabulary. Maybe I even lack the nerve. Who knows? It seems like Lauren could write about anything. She can say anything. And I really, I really admire that. There are only a handful of poets who can do that. It's amazing. And do it without... I mean, I read it and I was going like, whoa. But I wasn't offended. I was... I get it. Yeah, this has to be said. Uh, this is real. This is true. This is who we are. And I love what you said is that this is a sign of love. Uh, when, you know, when my sister... And I have to throw out kudos to my sister who will eventually be listening to this podcast. My sister Barbara took care of our mom when she was in her last year of life. And it was hard, hard, hard for her. We would show, I would show up every weekend, but almost. she was there almost every weekend. Yeah, we Thank you for keeping me honest, sweetheart. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe you should read one of those. Maybe no. we should. What, what why don't, why don't we read one? Yeah. Is there one that we are interested in hearing? Oh. It could be a filthy one. It's all right. We're at a bar. Yeah, read, read your filthiest one. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess I can read the poem about my grandfather's 70th birthday. Yeah, read that one. I know this oh, is, yeah. This is one of Martine's favorites. So this is a true story. Every last bit of it. Um, all the people are real. The story is real. Um, and this kind of gives you maybe a little bit of a better understanding as to why I feel like I can say what needs to be said. Um, I come from a tradition of that in the household. So it's, even though they don't really like it now because it's more public, but in front of one another, my family doesn't really hold back. So this is called Grandpa's 70th Birthday, in memory of Michael Giovio, 1920-1997. For his 70th birthday, Uncle Smokey, who was once fined for waving a dildo at a woman in a car, who used to wake my mother by doing cannonballs on her in bed, who for two miles ran from his father around the neighborhood for refusing to push in his chair after being dismissed from the dinner table as a kid, gives Grandpa a box of petrified cow shit and two nudie magazines. The former because he lived on a Louisiana farm in those days, the latter because, though Grandpa couldn't say much even nearing 20 years after his stroke, he loved buxom women. Over cake, Smokey opens a magazine, flashes pictures of naked women in his aging father's face. Did you ever learn to jerk it with your left hand, Mikey? He needles, stroking a long cock of air at the dinner table. My mother smacks her brother. Fucking shit, Grandpa huffs, shaking his head and waving his left, his one good hand. You miss me, Smokey jests, knowing. No but Jess, Grandpa says. After cake, my mother removes his bib and walks him with his cane up the steps to our side of the house. We three kids are sequestered to our grandparents' kitchen when the stripper arrives. Later, our parents let us watch the footage. First, she dresses Grandpa like Rambo. She drapes a long, curly black wig over his head, a sash of plastic bullets across his chest, and rests the butt of a machine gun at his groin. Then, she starts to take off her clothes. Every time she removes a garment, the party hoots and shakes noisemakers, but Grandpa just sits there, shaking his wigged head, half laughing, saying, No, 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 no. The stripper removes her shirt, and Rambo says, No, 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 no. The stripper removes her shorts, and Rambo says, No, 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 no. When she gets down to a mint green bikini, Rambo holds up clothes for her to put back on with his bumbling left hand. No, but yes, he says. She shakes her head coyly at his offering. The family howls off screen as she wiggles her breasts still in their bikini near his face. Smokey's disembodied voice sounds, You like those, huh, Mikey? Suddenly, the laughing stops. Rambo starts to cry. Guarding her bikini breasts, the stripper hurries out of the shot as my mother rushes to her father to wipe his tears away. The wig is crooked on his head now. He looks at her, helpless as a sick child. Finished and finished, he says. 
She slides off the wig, fixes her hair, his hair with her fingers, finished and finished, she says. I just got goosebumps. That's amazing. It's <laughs> funny, and I'm crying at the same time. Well, that's the turn, right? That's the turn. It's the turn in the poem. If I've done it right, I've set you up for a ridiculous you, story. <laughs> you did. And then, it's not ridiculous at all. It's no, 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 yes, yes, yes. It's like, yeah. Mm. We, yeah, I mean, men live in that world. There's another poem you have called Parony. Mm. Uh, it's so right. I mean, the, 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 the attraction of men to breasts, you know, and it's like I was going like, I felt like I was always being forgiven for having that attraction. <laughs> yes, you can't you help. Know? Breasts are beautiful. <laughs> they are. We don't blame you, but learn to control yourself. Right. right. I, 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 yeah. Simmer and down. that about sums it up. Yeah. <laughs> we get it. Okay, that's Parkour Radio. For <laughs> right, there you go. Our tip for the day. <laughs> yeah, I had to look up parody. I mean, I, didn't, I had never heard that word before. I'll let everyone else look it up if you want to know what, what, what parody is and how, what it has to do with, with women's wonderful breasts. We've already talked about Whitman as being an inspiration for both of you and, and um, Songs of Myself, um, which is, comes up as a, a kind of an epigraph, wherever you put it at the top of your poem. What do you call that? The yeah, it's actually the, the section header for each of the different sections in my book, which going back to what you're talking about earlier about my Catholic upbringing, Filthy Labors is arranged around the Catholic sacraments. And instead of using mm-hmm. the liturgical texts to sort of anchor each of the sections, I'm using Whitman, a much more secular set of values that have way more meaning to me than anything that I would find in the Bible. And adds a whole other layer yeah. to it as you're reading it. Filthy Labors, um, I, I highly recommend that. I, it's, like a, it's very seldom I can't put a poetry book down. <laughs> and I felt like I was reading it too fast. Because I just was like, it was like such good stuff. I just wanted to keep going. Well, thank you. Yeah. Appreciate it. Yeah, I, um, You're also a very good reader. Thank I you. Mean, we, I mean, we, I'm very critical of, of authors reading their own work. Because <laughs> often it's very disappointing. Um, but not the case today. So, what is, it be, what is it like being married to a poet? Who are you asking? <laughs> both of you. Well, you both can both answer it. Well, we were just talking about this on the way down, actually. We were. Yeah. I, you know, uh, let me preface this by saying it's not simply about being married to a poet. It's about being married to the right poet. Because you could be married, a poet could be married to another poet. It could be a catastrophe. Right? Often has been. And often historically, <laughs> yeah. Like when two been. actors get married, it's usually <coughs> yeah. it's not a good thing. Or poets end up with their head in the oven. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. right. Yeah. So, uh, but... Having said with that preface that it's a matter of being re- married to the right poet and the right person, it, it makes an enormous difference to me that Lauren can look at me noodling around on my laptop and realize that I'm working. It doesn't look like I'm working. I'm sitting on the couch. I have my, my, little, my little Mac that's been dropped 15 times and there's got you know, cracks in the screen and so on and so forth. And, and my mind is such that it's, it's like uh, it wanders, but it wanders very deliberately. And so maybe it looks like I'm not working, but I'm really working. And so there's a, there's a recognition uh, uh, that something is happening there. I don't have to explain it. I don't have to define it, or justify it. And, and then, of course, comes the, uh, the moment of truth when I can say to her or she can say to me I have something to read you listen, listen to this and then you have your, your best listener, your best reader there for you and I don't share my work before it gets published with very many people I'm not one of those uh, who likes to do the poem by committee but I do share everything first with Lauren and uh, she is absolutely uh, 100% trustworthy she also being being a high school teacher catches all of my grammatical and I was going to uh, ask, uh, does she errors, ever critique you, know. you? Yeah, no, she'll say, oh, you, you got a comma missing there. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes we have to, no, you, no. What? Yes, it's just, you have to put the comma there. But, 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 no, you have to put the <laughs> comma wait, there. Wait, you're a poet. Can't you, you know, you can, you can go against convention, can't you? Aren't you allowed? No, I have to <laughs> put the comma house. there. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but does it ever happen where Lauren doesn't like what you wrote? And she says, I, this doesn't work for me. That doesn't happen. 
No, I think if I'm ever, the most critical thing I think I would say is it's not done yet. You're not finished. You haven't arrived. But I never tell him that, and he's surprised by that. He usually, he already knows. Um, yeah. And, and I would say the same is true for, for me. He's, especially with the fiction, he's very willing to say, you know, you know that doesn't ring true yet. You know you've got to go back to that. Um, and that doesn't hurt. That, no, that. not at all. I, I expect him to be honest. If he's not honest with me about poetry, then really. I mean, and when what you good have, is it? and when you have a problem, or when you have a, you know, you're working through something. Isn't it wonderful when you come, when you figure it out, when you solve that, you know, yeah. whatever you were working on. Well, it, you, I'm dealing with uh, somebody who knows me better than I know myself, well, and knows my work better than I know my. Work. Yeah. So it, it's a blessing. Okay, Lauren. Martin has some renown. Yes. Been around. People know him. Yes. It was right? poetry you, and his reputation of poetry that is how we met, actually. Right. Yeah. Is there any ego here on your part that, you know, it's like I'm not, I'm kind of under his shadow here. Or, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm as Spada's wife. Uh, it's funny, we talked about that on the way down. Do you want to answer yeah, that I question? Read, it was, read, it was a long ride. Yes. We, <laughs> got, we got stuck on the DW bridge. What, you know. what did you say to me about ego, my ego? What did I say about You said it? I don't have any. Yeah. Probably, well, probably that you need some more. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, we're at, different, we're at very different points in our career. Um, and I am relatively new to this. I didn't start writing seriously until I was almost 30 which by today's standards is late, especially in the world of uh, internet publishing and, and social media and things like that. So um, I, I just don't have that competitive spirit. And I feel like when people are heaping praise on him, I'm like, yeah, right, exactly. You should be doing this, you know. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I'm not competitive with him because there's no reason to compete. He wants what's best for me. If I win, he win, wins. If he wins, I win. Um, and you're and very different poets. We're yeah. very different poets, yeah. and, and this is particularly true as I move more into writing fiction, right? Um, so no, I, I don't. I'm not concerned about what it would look like if I all of a sudden gained some real popularity or got more money over. I don't. I don't think we look at it that way. It's what brought us together, but our relationship obviously goes much, much more beyond that. Yeah. yeah, and I take great pride in her work. I take great pride in her poetry. One of one of my favorite things is to go to a reading. Uh, as we will tonight, where Lauren is reading in Fordham, and watch the audience. I know what's coming. They don't. I sit back. I know they're going to love this. They don't know that yet. And then it happens. And then I can, you know, sort of fold my arms in a self-satisfied way and say, hmm, I knew it. But that's 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 uh, I, I take a I take a great deal of pride and, and, and pleasure in that. So you say poetry brought you together. How? What happened? Yeah, I was living in Oregon at the time because when you're a Jersey girl, you just decide one day that you're going to move to Oregon, which is what that's I did. Right. Okay, it's a natural um, choice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I had just gotten out of a relationship and I wanted to go back to school to get an MFA. I had been teaching high school for about. Know, six or seven years at that point and I knew I needed to get a master's degree I wanted to avoid getting a master's degree in English which I ended up doing eventually anyway and I wanted to get an MFA and I wanted to really deep dive into poetry and I was really concerned going into an MFA program that I had very little knowledge at all of contemporary poetry you know I'd studied the canon as an English major in college right so I really was really self-conscious about that uh, as it turns out, when I got to my MFA program, nobody else had really read a whole lot of contemporary work either. So, But I didn't want to be that person. I didn't want to be the sort of standout loser who didn't know anything about poetry. So I had spent about a year, almost a year and a half, reading as much contemporary poetry as I could. And I made a promise to myself that I would always stick my finger in a bookshelf randomly and pull out a book and buy it or take it from the library and read it um, as a way of just exposure. And I pulled out The Republic of Poetry, and that's one of Martine's books. And I read it on my way on a flight home from uh, Oregon to New Jersey to see my family for the summer. And I fell in love with the book. I read everything thereafter. And um, in the meantime, I had gone to a poetry festival in Palm Beach, Florida, where it was the first, it was the first opportunity I had had to sort of try on my poet hat. 
And uh, the poet Kim Adonizio was my workshop leader that week. And part of what you pay for when you do this is you get to sit down one-on-one with the workshop leader that you have for the week. And in that conversation, Kim said to me, you're, you're the best at the table and you can have a career in poetry and this is what you want. And she says, I think getting an MFA is a great idea. Um, so I'd had such a life-changing experience at that festival. So the next year when the festival poets were announced, I looked them up and who was on the list but Martina Spada. And I said, well, if I can get into his workshop, I'll go back down to Florida. And I did, and we became very fast friends. And uh, the rest is history, as they say. I had known that. that because that's the same way I met Martin. I, said, I applied to the Joiner Center workshop in 2000, and I sent my poems to Martin. They said, you have to send six poems or eight poems, and the workshop leader will decide whether he wants you. And I said... I'm only interested in one of the of the uh, two-week workshops, and that's Martina Spada. So if he doesn't want me, I don't want to go there. And I got a letter back from saying, "Come to my workshop," and that's how we met. In fact, uh, this is how I met everyone uh, because I've been around so long. I am like the Galapagos tortoise of American poetry. Uh, in fact, that's how I met Charles Darwin. <laughs> wow. You collect algae on your shell. Yes, I do. <laughs> we started talking uh, earlier about Martine, where you got your commitment from, which was from your father, I imagine, yeah. uh, because he was um, um, an activist. Yeah, well, not just my father, but there, there was a whole generation of, of Puerto Rican activists and leaders uh, where I, I got that, uh, that inspiration. Right. Uh, one of them died a year ago. His name was uh, Luis Cardena Costa. He was um, the co-founder and director of something called El Puente, which was a community center in uh, the Williamsburg section of Brooklyn. I just wrote a poem about him. So, and, we should, and we should mention um, uh, the man whose name just flew out of my mind? Jack Agueros. Jack Agueros. Jack Agueros, another <laughs> yeah. one. Yeah. Another Who one. is far too little known in this country. He's a fabulous poet. Yes. Can we start and talk about this idea of history, poetry as, as a, a revelation of history? It comes out in your poetry, Martine, in a number of different places. I, I listed a few here. Albanza, in praise of Local 100. Litany at the tomb of Frederick Douglass. Vivas to those who have failed. Uh, one about Howard Zinn. How does history inform your poetry? I mean, how do you use historical events like, you know, talking about, um, you know, Frederick Douglass well, first of all, uh, we can take the word history and focus on, on the uh, part of the word that uh, means the most to me, and that's story. Uh, I, I think we are the stories we tell, and the stories we tell about the past uh, influence what we do in the present and what becomes of the future. And uh, that we, if we look at, 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 at that lens of history, if we look at Frederick Douglass, uh, if we look at the uh, Patterson Silk Strike of 1913, about which I wrote a series of sonnets, we can certainly, first of all, we can appreciate the stories for what they are. It's extraordinary. That's the heart and soul of, of any culture, the stories. But they also tell us something, of course, about ourselves. They tell us something about the world we're going to um, we're going to create for ourselves and for the generations to come. So, of course, it, it matters a great deal. Right. And the story you told about Sandy Hook, I mean, that's, you, 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 it is a story, terrible, tragic story, but it's one that you told in a way that, I don't know, not humanized it, what is it? You, you used the term that you, it, it, it brought it to something where we could live with it, maybe grow from it. Well, we are, we are also making a record of our times. We are not uh, bestsellers, most of us, but um, there's a way in which poetry endures. Um, and uh, we are saying something that the historians can't say. Poetry is the art of the concise. It's the art of the vivid. And, and hopefully you do something where you're not only telling the story, but at the same time you are uh, providing those goosebumps that you talked about earlier with respect to Lawrence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can we hear Albanza? Do I don't we know. Do we Can we? Can I don't we? have it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> we have it. 
I think we I'm have sure, it. I'm sure we can find it here somewhere. No, let me read it out of the book. I think, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, because you never, you know, there are all kinds of sort of, I don't know, it's, it's, they're all kinds of, like, it's like Dylan. They're all kinds of bootleg editions of Alavanza floating around. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. I, I, uh, I bought Lauren's book, but not yours. I so. found some on the internet. I was like, wait a minute. I didn't write that, did I? <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> it's very strange. I see something with your name attached to it that's not quite what you wrote. Hmm. But I'm not complaining. Uh, okay, so, you know, we're talking about history, and one of the strange things that I encounter now is, uh, you know, I'm teaching at the University of Massachusetts, and I teach elsewhere, and I'm discovering that there are some young people in my classroom who do not remember 9-11. And if you live through that, if you live through that in this city especially, uh, you, your understanding of that moment is that everyone would always know you would never have to explain it. It was going to be one of those watershed moments in history. Well, guess what? People are forgetting already. There are people who have no memory of this and some who aren't interested. So the meaning of the poem changes over the years. The word alabanza means praise in Spanish. This poem focuses specifically on the food service workers who were killed that day, one particular restaurant called Windows on the World, um, and, and praises them, makes the invisible visible, which I think is an important purpose of poetry. So uh, here we are. Alavanza in praise of Local 100. For the 43 members of hotel employees and restaurant employees, Local 100, working at the Windows on the World restaurant who lost their lives in the attack on the World Trade Center. Alavanza. Praise the cook with a shaven head and a tattoo on his shoulder that said, Oye! A blue-eyed Puerto Rican with people from Fajardo, the harbor of pirates centuries ago. Praise the lighthouse in Fajardo, candle glimmering white to worship the dark saint of the sea, Alabanza. Praise the cook's yellow pirate's cap worn in the name of Roberto Clemente, his plane that flamed into the ocean loaded with cans for Nicaragua for all the mouths chewing the ash of earthquakes. Alavanza. Praise the kitchen radio. Dial clicked even before the dial on the oven so that music and Spanish rose before bread. Praise the bread. Alavanza. Praise Manhattan from 107 flights up like Atlantis glimpsed through the windows of an ancient aquarium. Praise the great windows where immigrants from the kitchen could squint and almost see their world. Hear the chant of nations. Ecuador, Mexico, República Dominicana, Haiti, Yemen, Ghana, Bangladesh, Alavanza. Praise the kitchen in the morning where the gas burned blue on every stove and exhaust fans fired their diminutive propellers. Hands cracked eggs with quick thumbs or sliced open cartons to build an altar of cans. Alavanza. Praise the busboy's music, the chime chime of his dishes and silverware in the tub. Alavanza. Praise the dish dog. The dishwasher who worked that morning because another dishwasher could not stop coughing or because he needed overtime to pile the sacks of rice and beans for a family floating away on some Caribbean island plagued by frogs. Alavanza. Praise the waitress who heard the radio in the kitchen and sang to herself about a man gone. Alavanza. After the thunder wilder than thunder, after the shutter deep in the glass of the great windows, after the radio stopped singing like a tree full of terrified frogs, after night burst the dam of day and flooded the kitchen. For a time, the stoves glowed in darkness like the lighthouse in Fajardo, like a cook's soul. Soul, I say. Even if the dead cannot tell us about the bristles of God's beard because God has no face. Soul, I say, to name the smoke beings flung in constellations across the night sky of this city and cities to come. Alavanza, I say, even if God has no face. Alavanza. When the war began, 
from Manhattan and Kabul too, constellations of smoke rose and drifted to each other, mingling in icy air, and one said with an Afghan tongue, teach me to dance, we have no music here. And the other said with a Spanish tongue, I will teach you, music is all we have. <sighs> That poem always, always, I can't, I can't even read that without crying, that poem. No, you were here. Yeah. We were all here. We were yeah. all here. Yeah. And, and that... And you're right, we forgot. My students don't remember it. Yeah. They were babies. Yeah. So this is what we do, we tell the stories. And you, 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 it's not that you hold the event and keep the event from going away. It's the, it's that connection, the people, the, the, the heart, the, the fact that you remind us not only of the of the workers in the windows in the world, the, the, the cooks and the dishwashers and so forth, but also of the, of the. I, I heard recently that we've passed the hundred thousand mark in number of civilians killed and. Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they're in there too. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And and the notion at the time I remember in fact this may have been the slogan of the American Friends Service Committee, right? No more victims anywhere. Yeah. Well it's yeah. it's still a dream, it's still a vision, which doesn't make it any less valid for that. Yeah. Lauren, you also write about histories. Uh, they're smaller histories. Mm -hmm. um, in your series of poems that take place in the Haven House for Homeless Mothers and Children, you tell the history of Diona and Brittany and Laquita and Denise and Angelica and, and others. And I wonder if we can uh, talk about that and maybe read a poem from that. I, I was particularly taken with the filthy labors, and I don't know whether, whether you'd want to read it or not, about the, um, the, um, the sexual, um, the taste one. Sure. Yeah. She's yeah. okay, she can read that, yeah. Uh, it's another one where you're leaning one way and you get pushed the other. Um, so, after I left Oregon under some rather dubious circumstances... Oh, do tell. <laughs> yes. Um, I was fired from my Catholic school teaching position for the publication of a poem about masturbation. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. So... Um, there you go. Yeah. So I ended up back in New Jersey. That wasn't hard. Though. I yeah. mean, I might have been hard. I don't mean to say it was difficult for you. But sometimes... You know, if you so disagree with the the idea that it's like, okay, you know? I didn't disagree with um, their decision to terminate me. If, if it was so horrible to them that I wrote this poem, fine, right? That's right. kind of what you're, you're saying. You're in the wrong Yeah, that's place, what I'm saying. Then. I exactly. do resent the way I was treated. Ah, so. okay. But that's a whole other... We'll save that for next time. Okay, <laughs> okay. Um, okay good. So when I moved back to New Jersey, <laughs> I ended up um, teaching community college and four-year schools. I was adjuncting and going to graduate school a second time. And I was volunteering at what is called in the book, The Haven House. Um, it's, I changed the name for, and I changed all the names of the women except for one. Um, and I decided that when I, like, when I was in Oregon and I wrote uh, the Psalms of the Dining Room, I had been volunteering at a family meals program in Eugene where I was serving dinner a couple times a week. And when I moved back to New Jersey, I wanted to continue service in some other way, but I didn't want to do the same thing because the dining room in Eugene, Oregon was a, a very special, sacred thing to me, and I didn't want to try to duplicate that experience, but I did want to continue my service in some other way. And I thought, well, I'm writing poetry, and I'm a published poet now, and maybe I can do something with that. And so I pitched this idea of running a creative writing workshop for these mothers, and I ended up doing it every week, give or take, if, unless I was sick or had something else to do, but pretty much every week for two years. Um, and it's supposed to be a year-long program for the women. They were supposed to get some sort of education certificate and then be out in a year, but a lot of the women were unable to do that for a variety of reasons. Um, it was an interesting experience. I connected very deeply with the women who uh, lived there. I struggled a great deal with the women who ran the place. Um, so, uh, their attitudes were often very punitive, um, and the way they were treated, the, women, the way the women were treated was very punitive, and... Um, it was really hard to be in that kind of environment. But um, I felt like poetry did help spare the women those feelings at times, and it did help restore their dignity. Um, and that's actually what this poem is about. And it's called Cloistered. 
There are no men in the Haven House, and whether it was the tides and the moon or the nearness of their rooms, ten red rosaries aligned, and the animal throb of their bodies, too hard for two mothers to deny. So when I say, write a poem about a body you know, bodies of their sons, their daughters, their mothers, their own, Shauna writes of the night she made her way into a bedroom down the hall and reads aloud her poem about the dark vinegar of another woman's menstruation on her mouth, the tang of that first forbidden taste. She reads about how the scent of red-brown silt streaked her nose, chin, and cheeks, how her fingernails carried crescents of blood for three days before the smell they held was fully scrubbed away, how she'd lift her fingers to her nose to inhale, teasing her secret lover in the hallways and over dinner. But here she is now, the door to her confessional wide open. All other mothers but one are scared of what it is not clear, the blood the body, two bloods, two bodies, sex at all in a place where you can't even snack in the living room, sex because sex put them here in the first place, though not this sex, hidden sex, between two women's sex, at that time of the month sex, with the nighttime aid just downstairs sex, there are no men in the Haven House sex, so two women turned to each other, bowed to the cross of the other woman's body, and drank deeply of her consecrated wine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, when I, when I read that, it's like it was... I'd never read anything like that before. <laughs> no. I don't think anybody's written anything like that before. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think going back to what we were saying earlier, the fact that you, you're, you're a brave person. <laughs> Maybe you don't feel it, but... No, and I don't look it, which I think is the other thing. I think people look at me, I'm sort of small and... Yeah. You know, just very normal looking, you know, and then these things come out and they're like, what is happening? At the, at the, same, at the same time that I feel dis, like a physical disgust, I feel an honoring, I feel like that is what the Eucharist is. Right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's what it is. It's the, it's the taste of humanity. Well, the consecrated wine. Yeah, and it, it's an intimacy that is not permitted. Um, in, a, in a lot of ways, right? So it, it's literally not permitted to have sex in the Haven House, right? Uh, in some people's lives, they think sex between two women is not, is not okay, you right. know? So it's, it's forbidden, and in, in when you think about sex on your period, a lot of people think that's taboo, right? So it's sort of blowing up all these taboos and saying, no, there's humanity here, there's beauty here, there's love here. Um, and, you know, who are you to say no to any of it? I got all that. I'm so glad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We had this idea of asking you each to read one of the other person's poem, the other partner's poem in this. I, we are prepared to do that. We are. Uh, so yeah, let's let's hear, you know, Martine read Lauren and Lauren read Martine. Okay. Are you are you going to pick out one for for Martine to read? He already he's already selected what he wants to read. Oh, yeah, no. The, what appears to be improvised is actually uh, okay. prearranged. All right. Okay. <laughs> the long ride here. Yeah, <laughs> is that you know? And we love doing this stuff together. I mean, it's yeah. it's a real treat for us. So thank you so Great. much for having us. Oh wait, well, we want really you back. Oh, I thanks. mean, I think there's there's thanks a lot more coming. stuff to read. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so um, I should say, by way of introduction, uh, I I have many favorite poems. Uh, this is not my only favorite poem. Um, it's not even necessarily number one on the hit parade, but it's right up there. And it's another one of the series of Haven House poems. And what I want to say is that this poem, uh, for me, uh, is a seed. It's a poem about empathy. It's a poem in defense of empathy. And because of this poem, discussing this poem, contemplating this poem, I came up with an idea for an anthology. And the anthology uh, was entitled, What Saves Us? Poems of Empathy and Outrage in the Age of Trump, which uh, indeed came to fruition and was published uh, by Northwestern University Press. Uh, so, uh, and needless to say, this poem is in there. I wanted to put more than one in there, but uh, Lauren saw an ethical dilemma <laughs> there. Um, and uh, ultimately, I was limited to one poem. But, hey... Uh, she, she, she saves me from some of my excesses. Uh, so here's the poem, and I've 
I've heard it many times, but you know, I don't think I've ever read it out loud. Uh, it's called The Social Worker's Advice, The Haven House for Homeless Women and Children. Jabbing a finger at my face, you say, you can't have empathy. Empathy will eat you alive. As if empathy were a beast with feathers, fur, and hair, with hind legs and deaf feet, wings and claws, a beast that soars, stalks, lunges, springs, a beast that chases, a beast that screams instead of sings, with giant jaws and a tongue butted with a rapacious taste for fools like me, fools who don't believe the beast exists to eat, who let it burrow its snout between our legs, fingers, up to our armpits, the common spaces of our human stink. But you see a beast that sniffs and snarls for a thick blue vein to sick. And when I look at you, I understand the beast more plainly. I see that his skin collects pockmarks each time you dock merit points to teach the mothers not to talk black. I see that its forehead sprouts a thousand of your scornful eyes. Its claws slash as swift and deep as your condescension. Because what you mean is that I can't have empathy for these girls, for times like these, for a place like this, for Nicole, who tallies the number of days it's been since she last flushed her veins with a spoon-cooked mix, 28 days and counting. No empathy for Nicole, because she can never seem to find matching socks for her four-year-old son, or because she folds flowers from twice-used com computer paper to calm her nerves. Bouquets of paper daisies sprout from vases on all four tables in the dining room. When you mean is that I can't have empathy for Takina, who was told to go by Tina, because her white adoptive mother, middle-aged, middle-class, prefers it. Her birth mother is five years gone, and Tina Takina thinks she might be pregnant again. I can't have empathy for Denise, who is pregnant with her third, but didn't know until she was too far in, for Angelica, who fell down the stairs while holding her infant son, too spent from pre-sun feedings and weeping in the wee hours as minutes lurch by. Each tick-tock is the sound of the deadlock door of the nighttime aide who snores in the small room near the exit like a beast at the gates, preventing escape from this place, this time, from lives like these, without signing a release form for the division of youth and family services, like Diana, who took her two kids to a hotel where, alone at night, she stares at ceiling holes in the red glow of the word vacancy, flashing through the windows with no curtains. I can't have empathy for Lakita so thin that when she aims her breast at her baby's lips, she prays she has something wet and real to give. When you say with your wagging finger, you can't have empathy, empathy will eat you alive. What you mean is that I can't have empathy for these girls. And when I look at you, I cannot help but wonder when you first believed empathy would do more than sniff and lick your palms. So, I say, let it take me, then, this beast of your invention. Let it slip its fangs into my skin and tear through my throat. Let it suck all the fat and blood from off my solid bones. <sighs> Thanks, honey. That was a good job. You did a very nice job. Well, thank you. <laughs> and, and this is now part of a book that, that you just published. Yeah, it's called What Saves Us? Homes of Empathy and Outrage in the Age of Trump from yeah. Northwestern University Press and the Curbstone imprint. And uh, yes, that, that poem is in there. The anchor, you might say. Right, the inspiration. The inspiration, the seed. That's where it all started. Great. And Laura... What are you going to read? I'm going to read a poem he wrote for me, actually. Um, and the reason I'm choosing this poem is because it's a love poem, but it's a political love poem. And I think that there are so many poems that lapse into cliché. And Martina is such a great writer with such tremendous vision that 
he avoids that all the time, and that includes with love poems. Um, I also read this because you asked earlier about who I am, right? Am I a teacher, writer, or writer, teacher? Well, this is a poem about me being a teacher and that early morning commute we alluded to earlier. Um, this is a true story. It's called Obad with Concussion. Poverty is black ice. Naomi Ajala. You leave me sleeping in the dark. You kiss me and I stir fingers in your hair, eyes open, unseeing. You leave me asleep every morning, commuting to the school in this city at sunrise. The landlord's driveway, a muddy creek, ices over hard after the freezing rain clatters all night. Your feet fly up, your head slamming the ground, an eclipse of the sun flooding your eyes. You sleep under the car. No one knows how long you sleep. You awake with a hundred ice picks stabbing your eardrums. You awake, coat and hair soaked, and somehow drive to school. You remember to turn left at the Smith & Wesson factory. The other teachers lead you by the elbow to Mercy Hospital, where you pause when the nurse asks your name, where you claim your pain level is a four, and they slide you into the white coffin of an MRI machine. You hold your breath. They film your brain. Concussion, the word we use for a boxer plunging face first into the canvas after an uppercut blindsided him, not the teacher commuting to school at sunrise in a Subaru Crosstrek. Yet, you would drive, ears hammering as they hammer in the purgatory of the MRI. A week before, Isabella came to you in the classroom and said, Miss, I cannot sleep. Three days, I cannot sleep. Her boyfriend called at 2 a.m. and she did not pick up. At 3 a.m., a single shot to the head put him to sleep, and he will sleep forever, his body hidden beneath a car in a parking lot on Maple Street, the cops, the television cameras, the neighbors all gathering at the yellow tape carnival of his corpse. You said to Isabella, take this journal, write it down. You don't have to show me, you don't have to show anyone. On the cover of the journal you bought at the drugstore was the word dream. Isabella sat there in your classroom at your desk, pencil waving in furious circles. By lunchtime, as her friends slapped each other, Isabella slept, head on the desk, face pressed against the pages of the journal. This is why I watch you sleep at 3 a.m. when the sleeping pills fail to quell the strike meeting in my brain. This is why I say to you when you kiss me in my sleep, don't go, don't go, you have to go. Martine, you really love this woman. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It goes both ways. I really love him. I know, but okay. this poem. I'm, <laughs> we're talking about this poem right now. Yeah. You know, this, um, I think, has been a I thrill. Think, I think one of, the, uh, one of the most beautiful things that I've ever experienced is you guys falling in love with each other. It was pretty good for us, too. <laughs> <laughs> I'd do it again. <laughs> We have to bring this to a close. Since Lauren has to go down to Lowenstein Hall at Fordham University to read poems for the children who don't remember 9-11. <laughs> right. This has been a really special Bark Roll Radio uh, podcast. It's, um, I, I, I don't want it to stop. It could go on. Well, thank I, I don't you. want to thank stop. This well, hopefully we will go on for years. Yeah. Well, I always appreciate it when uh, interviewers are well-prepared. You're clearly very well prepared. Well, thank you. you. Did your job, so thank you. Lauren Reed Schmidt and Martine Espada, thank you so much for being on Barcore Radio here at Gephardt's Beer Culture Bar. Thank you. Thank you. Now, a BCR extra, Martine Espada reading his poem, Heal the Cracks in the Bell, followed by a brief conversation of his poem. I probably don't need to remind this audience that on December 14, 2012, um, a gunman killed uh, 20 students uh, ages 6 to 7 and 6 educators at the Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. Um, this uh, poem you're about to hear is based on my visit to Newtown. It was written for the occasion of a National Children's Day event entitled Within Our Reach at the Newtown Congregational Church on June the 8th, 2013. 
Uh, you'll hear me reference the city where children gathered copper shells. That's Tirana, Albania, site of the Bell of Peace. Um, the phrase in the poem, I was born of bullets, comes from the Bell's inscription. You'll hear me reference the city where cannons from the armies of the Great War sank into molten metal. That's uh, Roberto, Italy. It's the site of the Campana de Caduti, or Bell of the Fallen. Um, and uh, you'll see where the poem goes. In terms of the vision, um, it expresses, Heal the cracks in the bell of the world for the community of Newtown, Connecticut, where 20 students and six educators lost their lives to a gunman at Sandy Hook Elementary School, December 14, 2012. Now the bells speak with their tongues of bronze. Now the bells open their mouths of bronze to say, listen to the bells a world away. Listen to the bell in the ruins of a city where children gathered copper shells like beach glass and the copper boiled in the foundry and the bell born in the foundry says, I was born of bullets, but now I sing of a world where bullets melt into bells. Listen to the bell in a city where cannons from the armies of the Great War sank into molten metal, bubbling like a vat of chocolate, and the many mouths that once spoke the tongue of smoke form the one mouth of a bell that says, I was born of cannons, but now I sing of a world where cannons melt into bells. Listen to the bells in a town with a flagpole on Main Street, a rooster weather vane keeping watch atop the meeting house, the congregation gathering to sing in times of great silence. Here, the bells rock their heads of bronze as if to say, melt the bullets into bells, melt the bullets into bells. Here, the bells raise their heavy heads as if to say, melt the cannons into bells, melt the cannons into bells. Here, the bells sing of a world where weapons crumble deep in the earth and no one remembers where they were buried. Now, the bells pass the word at midnight in the ancient language of bronze, from bell to bell, like ships smuggling news of liberation, from island to island, the song rippling through the clouds. Now, the bells chime like the muscle beating in every chest, Heal the cracks in the bell of every face listening to the bells. The chimes heal the cracks in the bell of the moon. The chimes heal the cracks in the bell of the world. Thank you, Martina Espada. Um, I, I, I'm going in a different direction than I thought because we weren't expecting you to read that. and That was, that was such a treat. You, may, you, you wrote that. Yes, I did. The feelings that you get when you read it, and you read it really well. Not all poets, I think, read well. Are you, that was beautifully read. Thank you. Um, what is it, does the original impetus of writing come back to you? Does the, or is it, is it a new experience when you, when you read a piece of your own? I would say that both uh, apply, uh, that uh, it's always new. It's, every time I read it, it's new. Every time I read it, it's a little bit different. If you read it exactly the same way every time, it would be dull, and uh, for me and for the listeners. Um, but it so also you're an actor. Well, I guess you could say that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm not. I'm not an actor like Chris is an actor, but I've done some acting. Yeah. Um, but the other piece of it is, it does take me back. It takes me back to the origins of the poem. It takes me back to the first time and place where I read it. And being uh, in the situation where I was reading to an audience that had been directly affected by that devastation. Uh, families, uh, uh, parents, uh, brothers and sisters. Uh, one of the things that startled me about that audience was, in fact, how very young the parents were, which made perfect sense considering the age of uh, the, uh, the children who were the victims in that massacre. How do you uh, speak to them? How do you read to them? You, you certainly can't uh, go back through that tragedy and, and, and make them relive it. You have to say something about vision. You have to say something about an, uh, an alternative future. 
And I learned something from that community about that vision. Uh, there was a group that formed in, in the wake of this uh, massacre, this slaughter, uh, called Sandy Hook Promise. And the essence of this group was that we are going to begin changing the world right now. This, is, this may not be where it ends, but this is the beginning of the end, in other words. And this group was very effective in changing uh, the situation in Connecticut. As, as far as uh, uh, guns and gun legislation. The culture of guns. Yes. Um, but, you know, of course, as we also know, this is still happening. It's happening every day. It might be happening somewhere right now. It could very well be happening. One more thank you to Lauren Marie Schmidt and Martina Spada for joining us on this very special Bar Crow Radio episode, Poetry, What Is It Good For? 